You know, there's like living in the moment and radical acceptance as an idea, like a nice idea to make ourselves feel better. And then there's actually living there. We're about to meet somebody who actually does that. Hang on to your seats. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversations for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Here's our host, Menachem Poznanski. The Consciously family, welcome back. It's great to be back. We have a wonderful interview for you, for you today. Really, really powerful stuff. But first, uh, thank you for joining us. I want to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, the five-star review, particularly on Apple. I know a lot of you are listening there. It really helps us out, so please do that. Also, remind you to check us out on our social media page, The Light Revealed, on Instagram and on Facebook. We're doing a great series on the 12 steps that I'm really enjoying. And uh, check out our books, uh, Consciously, Six Steps to Living Vibrantly with Our Creator, and Stepping Out of the Abyss. As always, you can reach us at our Instagram page, at The Light Revealed, or email us at consciouslythepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, we have a great interview for you today, Rabbi Scott Friedman. Rabbi Friedman is head of school, a Rebbe, and a therapist at Yeshivas or Yisrael of Tenafly. And he has a master's degree in psychology from Columbia University. He's been working with adolescents and young adults for over 17 years. He has a very unique and particular way of looking at the world that you would think is not novel because we all talk about it, but he really takes it to the next level, as I said earlier. I think there's so much to learn, and I'm really excited to share them with you. Here he is. Okay, here we are. We have Rabbi Scotty Friedman with us today, which is really exciting. Uh, I've heard murmurs of what he's doing over in, uh, in New Jersey, and uh, I'm really excited to hear more about it and to get to know him a little bit better. Rabbi Friedman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Very exciting to be here. Okay, so people got to, to know you a little bit on the, you know, the, the osios of your life, uh, a little bit in the introduction, but we really want to get to know you on an interior level. And for those who have heard the podcast, they know that we ask three questions same three questions every time to the same people, but they're never the same because everybody is different on the interior uh, and yet the same. So uh, we, we focus in on is a frame of Olam, Shana, Nefesh, which is space, time, and spirit. And the way we do that is first by focusing in on a favorite place in the world. So I ask you to think about what your f- most favorite place in the world and to try to be a, as exact and specific as you could be and let us know why. So there are two ways I could answer this question. I'm going to answer the way I want to, and you could tell me if I met my requirements, although I think I might not have. (laughs) Um, I think the correct answer to that, I know what it should be, and I could tell you what it is for me, my most favorite place, right? Mm -hmm. My most favorite place, see, it's almost funny to say this. I feel weird saying this publicly, but it's really wherever I am. That's the truth. There are places I don't like to be, fortunate enough to not have to put myself in such places, but um, generally wherever I am is the place I like to be. I think that to be a happy person, that's the way we need to live our lives. I always say that I think sometimes there's this concept that people have that uh, even in religion people could get lost in it, the idea of getting high. You know, Getting high is not just on drugs or weed or whatever. I actually think that when you could appreciate going to the supermarket with your children, um, that's really a good place to be. Okay, so two questions to follow up on. First of all, why are you embarrassed to say that? 
Or why is it uncomfortable to admit uh, well, that? Well, I, I think it's an arrogant statement. Okay. Yeah. So it can come off as arrogant. Yeah. It can seem arrogant. Definitely. Because you feel a sense of pride in having come to that place. Or Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Because it can come off as pretentious. Like, What is it that bothers you about it? Yeah, I think that it's an ideal. Proud is not a word. I don't. I'm not proud of anything, but it's something I'm very happy with, I would say, and feel a great satisfaction from. So, yeah, I think it could come off as pretentious, sure. Okay, so it's an ideal that you strive towards, and it's something that you feel like you've gained a measure of mastery over. Yeah. And that's something that's good, but you don't want to, but you don't want it to come off the right way. So, how did you get there? That's a great question. So, that goes back to something that, you know, I feel I have a certain message. I think all people do. But there's a certain something that I've learned in my life that has affected mine and everyone that I know's life in a very powerful way. And that's how I got here, through that. You know, I think a lot of people, myself included, when I was younger, have like dreams of what will make them happy. You know, I want to be great at this or great at that, big at this, big at that. You know, I even think that I went through and friends of mine. You know, at some point, you think you want to be a guddle and wonder. I don't know because I've never asked any of them. Although I should, I don't think any of the gadolim strive to be a guddle. Although I don't know, but I don't think so. It seems a very unhealthy thing to me. I think they became them. But just back to the point. So I, I, I think everyone has this idea. Like I'll be happy when. You know, and when you're younger, it could be a lot of things. When I win a championship in sports, or when I date a certain girl, or you know, when I make a certain amount of money, or when I become a certain level of popular. You know, everyone has their own version of what it is that makes them feel important. Um, but the problem is that whenever you get there, you know that it, it, you know you're still there. <laughs> the person is still there, and. Um, for the ride, at least, you had motivation. But once you get there, it's, uh, it's, you realize that it doesn't do for you what you thought it would. So something that I learned, it took me a very, very long time. The Mishnah says, Ezu usher So who is rich? Someone who's happy with what he has. So you know, when I was younger, I thought that meant, well, practically wealth, money. When it does, on one level, it definitely means that, right? Who is rich? Someone who's happy with what he has. If you need two million bucks and you only have a million... You're obviously not rich because you're short what you need. And that's always the case with money. And so I thought, okay, well, you know what? At least if I live my life in a way where I'm not always chasing money, I'll be rich. And there's some level of truth to that 100%. And then I was taught, guess what? It doesn't only mean that. The Svasemis, I think, says it's also true about Ruchnius, you know, that when you're always striving to be more frum than you are, more connected. So even that, you know, really being an Oisher is to mean. Is to be Samel Bechelko, which is its own conversation. Well, then what does it mean? You're never striving. That's a whole conversation. But what I finally concluded is that what it really, in my opinion, means the totality of it is everything. And on the deepest level, and that's really, I think, what we're here to talk about, it really means your thoughts and feelings. To me, a human being are their thoughts and feelings. You know, if someone gets into a, God forbid, an accident and uh, their face gets deformed, so they're the same person. They just look different. person changes their clothing. It's the same person. It's our thoughts and feelings that make us who we are at the end of the day. That's what makes every human being unique. When people realize that all their thoughts and feelings are correct, that's probably the best way to put it, or healthy or normal. I've never met an unhealthy person in my life. I think everyone's healthy. 
I just think that a lot of people have gone through experiences that cause them to use tools or have feelings develop to protect them from things that have gone on in their lives. But it's actually those very things they think that make them unhealthy that make them very healthy. That's the truth. So when a person realizes that all their thoughts and feelings are healthy, they, in my opinion, learn to like to be where they are um, because everything's the way it's supposed to be. I'll tell you a quick mice. I think a lot of the people listening will like this one. It's in the Rav Gifter uh, biography. Someone named uh, Ramatul uh, Pogromansky, I think is his name. And he tells a mice, he says that this Ramatul was so happy. Wherever he went, he was always happy. He said an amazing thing. So he said that Ramatul had a line. He said that a yid is never lost. A yid could never be lost. And he brings a raya that when Hagar leaves the house of Avram, so it says that she was lost. Or it's the other way. Maybe it says that she went back to her father. I think it says she, was, she went back to her father's house of Avodah Zarah. And Rashi says that she was lost. Or the other way around. It says she was lost. And then Rashi says, I don't know, I'd have to look it up, that uh, she went back to a way of Avodah Zarah. So... So Matul said, so it means that what? The only lost Rashi is saying could be going off the derech. But a yid who's connected to Hashem, who's following halacha and Torah mitzvahs, it can never be lost, no such thing. Because that's the derech. So his amazing Maisi said that he and a friend were traveling on a train in Poland, and they missed a stop, and it was Erev Shabbos, and they were, so to speak, lost. And they were in a town, there were no yidin in the town. So uh, his friend says to him, Ramatul were lost. So he says, a yid is never lost. Hashem never misleads a yid. We can't be lost. So he says, what are you talking about? We're lost. So he tells him the whole Misa, with Hagar, a yid could never be lost. He says, Shkoyach, nice vort, we're lost. So they, they go and they found one house. And this one house um, was the one yid who lived in town, a non-religious, non-observant Jew. And they show up and the guy is like, Oh my God, are you Elio and Navi? So they said, No, I'm Ramat, I'm Matul, whatever, and this is so and so. So he says, I can't believe you're here. So they said, We can't believe you're here. We, we have nowhere to go. It's Arab Shabbos. Can we stay at your house? He says, Of course. So he says, But can I ask, are either of you a mole? I had a son eight days ago. I've been trying to get a mole to come for Shabbos. No one would come for Shabbos. There's no community here. So Ramatul looks at his friend and he says, My friend here is a mole, and he even has all of his stuff with him for Mila. Mm. So he says, can you do the Mila for us tomorrow? He says, of course. And he looked at his friend and he said, you see, a yid is never lost. Mm. So a Jew can never be lost, you know? Wow. Okay. So just to pull it together and, and unpack a little bit what you said. So you were talking about how, you know, your favorite place is wherever you are because you're trying to incorporate this philosophy of really being Sameach Bechalko, which being happy with where you are, but not just what you have in terms of a material wealth. One thing I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy is a very hard term to define. Mm-hmm. This is another thing that I learned as part of this. Happy means, in my opinion, or Sameach means better yet, whole with everything you feel. And that includes feelings of sadness, of anxiety, of everything. Mm-hmm. That's what it really means, in my opinion. I always say, you know, you know, the Chazal says, but yet we sit Shiva, we have Tisha above. It seems like a stira. It's not a stira. Those are normal feelings for a person. We're supposed to have those feelings. Mm. All feelings are there to help. When I was younger, I thought a person's supposed to be, I guess, what, happy, whatever that means, all the time. That's not normal. That's not appropriate. Appropriate means to be a person who has feelings 
all kinds of feelings. So to me, simcha means to be able to be samer b'chelka, with your whole chelak, mm. everything that comes with it. Mm. It's great. It's a, it's a full thought, which is really great. So what you're saying is that by trying to incorporate this outlook or this philosophy, which we're going to talk about kind of guiding principles, but uh, I'm sure there'll be others, but trying to incorporate this principle of samech b'chalka, which is where you're really just defining simcha as a sense of full and complete wholesomeness with oneself. It has allowed you to become more and more happy with wherever it is you find yourself, because wherever you are is where you are. And then you said something very, very powerful and very intense, which is that there's you never met an unhealthy person. And I, and I understand the point that you were trying to make, you know, which is a very empowering message, which is so often we get stuck. I actually, unhealthy is like a pet peeve of mine. I hate when people say, I'm un- this is unhealthy, that's unhealthy. Like it's Because oftentimes it's so self-destructive in the way in which it's applied. And it's so delusional, mm-hmm. as if like, in the way that you described, like as if someone's not supposed to feel a certain way. And what you talked about was how an essence of this idea of Sameach Bechelko, aside from being grateful for materially what we have, and even being grateful for spiritually the abundance that we have, without that taking away from our drive to do better, but to truly be happy with the person that we are, which means coming to terms with our thoughts and our feelings, which is the way in which we react to the world. And sometimes that reaction might take on one set of garments, might look one way, or it might take on a different set of garments. But ultimately, for a person, what Chazal are teaching us, the Torah is teaching us, is to try to become okay with yourself. And then when you're okay with yourself, when you're happy with yourself, when you feel wholesome with yourself, then wherever you go is exactly where you're supposed to be. And that was the kind of implication of the story that you told, right? Which is just a beautiful metaphor for the fact that like, if you are allowing the journey to evolve and play itself out, then wherever you are is where you're supposed to be. And then that's great. And you never know what opportunities are going to come up for you. And obviously in that story, the the answer was obvious. And the answer in life is not always obvious, right? That's kind of where 100%. people tend to struggle. But yet it highlights the fact that we really can never know. And that as we become comfortable in this philosophy that you're putting forward of of this idea of being happy with who a person is within themselves, then we can be happy with wherever we find ourselves because wherever we find ourselves is exactly where we're meant to be. Beautiful. Great answer. Okay, so that philosophy to me requires taking on that philosophy or taking the leap of faith into that way of seeing the world requires a certain measure of optimism and hope because no doubt you've encountered suffering in your own life and you've encountered people that suffer in your own life. So I asked you to think about uh, an episode in your life that you experienced that told you that hope could be possible. Like that, that muddle and that story, you know, he took a leap of faith that God's going to show us why we're here in this odd town. And then that leap was reinforced. But there was something previous to that story that told him that he could have that kind of ballsy, you know, faith in, in reality. So I asked you to think about, or to, for you to share with the audience, a moment or an episode in your life that gave you that permission to have hope. Yeah, great question. So there are a few different answers. I have, I could, I mean, there's so many answers to that. <laughs> there's so many. I could address directly where I learned what I just said to you. Mm-hmm. Or I could share with you times in my life where things worked out because I followed my inner compass 
even when everyone told me not to. Mm. Why don't you share both? So the first one is probably my upbringing in a schools. I hate schools personally. Um, I hated going to school as a kid, but I like being educated, and I hated most authority figures. And when I was a kid, I was always getting in trouble, honestly, always. And I was always being told, you know, you should, you have ADD, you have this, you have that. You know, everyone was always telling me what was wrong with me. But looking back now, I'm 40, I truly believe that a lot of my life story and the people that I've been able to have relationships with and build friendships with were impacted in such a positive way because of what I went through. And because I followed my inner compass and didn't listen to the noise of the people around me. A better example of that, though, is this. (laughs) So I basically failed out of high school when I was a kid. And I went to Eretz I went to Reishit in Beit Shemesh in 1999. I spent two years learning there and then another two years as Madrich. And I learned in different places. But most of the time in my third and fourth years was not spent as much in the Beit Shemesh as it was really doing work on myself as a person emotionally, you know, trying to figure out myself, my life, my feelings, all that stuff. And it was an invaluable time that certainly catapulted me into uh, a healthier life forever. It's funny because at the time nobody had any idea what I was talking about. I don't know that I knew what I was talking about, but it was hard to explain to people that didn't get it, what I was going through. Mm. And almost nobody got it, honestly. But what ended up happening was I came back and I went originally to like YU for like a week or two, like I was supposed to with, you know, everybody, not everybody, a lot of other people. I couldn't be there for whatever reasons and I left. And then I went to another place and I left and I just couldn't be still. I couldn't find a place to exist. And, you know, from my certain people's perspective, it seemed very unhealthy to them. And it's funny, uh, unhealthy is is one term, but, you know, it was my journey and I was finding myself and... I was figuring it out, and what I really needed was someone to help me see the good in what I was doing, not the bad in what I was doing, which very few people had the ability to see that. There were some, but um, ultimately what ended up happening was I got my BTL from Orsamech because they were an accredited college somehow, and with that, I got into uh, Wurzweiler. I was planning on going to Wurzweiler. And once I hit that point, I said to myself, you know, maybe I'll go to Columbia. I'm here anyway in the city, or I was in the city, but I was local in the tri-state area. Why not go to Columbia? So I showed up at their door not knowing anything about admissions, school. I've never been a part of a school literally all this time, but I had been reading a lot and studying a lot and doing a lot of personal work. And I show up at the Columbia Graduate School office, I think Teachers College, on like 120th Street, and I'm like, so hey, where do I apply? And they like laugh at me, and they're like, you know, you missed the deadline. There's a whole process here, and I'm like, oh man. So the woman says to me, like, mom, like out of nowhere, she says, but you could come as a non-matriculated student. So I'm like, what's a non-matriculated student? So she said, well, you could come and take up to 11 credits, and then, you know, whatever. And I'm like, what do I do with those 11? She's like, well, after that, you'd have to go somewhere else. So I was like, that's pretty cool, actually. Maybe I'll come, I'll take them, I'll do really well, and they'll, maybe they'll accept me. In worst case, I'll transfer them out. So that's what I did. I started, I was a non-matriculated student, mm. and here's a great story. So I, there was this one professor I really liked. Her name was Dr. Lisa Miller, 
And she was amazing. She was into spirituality and religions and psychology and fascinating stuff. And being that I just came back from four years in Eretzrel, studying, learning in different, not only Batei Midrashos, but also spending this time with uh, you know a therapist who had a big impact on me and other people of interesting walks of life. I came back with this amazing amount of experience, you know, knowledge, whatever. So I came and this Dr. Miller and I connected right away in class when most people were regurgitating the information so they get an A. I'd be like really dialoguing with her in like a real, you know, humanistic way. And we became very close. We would talk a lot after class about, you know, religions and different things and spirituality and psychology, whatever. So I'll never forget this. I was standing outside of the uh, admissions office or the psychology department. And she says to me one day, it was like the end of the semester, so what courses are you taking next semester? So I said to her, you probably don't know this about me. I don't have a sticker on my forehead, but I'm an, I'm not really a student here. I'm a non-matriculated student. I was never, I was never accepted to the program. So she says, okay, so like what classes are you going to take? So I said, did you not hear me? You know, I... I don't know, I just applied, I have to wait to hear back. And she looks at me and she smiles and she says, well, I'm the head of the admissions uh, committee, so oh, wow. which classes are you going to be taking? And I actually broke down crying, like for real. I was dating my wife, who to her parents, being in an Ivy League school was very, very important. And being someone who was told that you know you have to follow the path that, the majority walks, otherwise you'll never get anywhere. And ending up in Columbia Graduate School, which was really the best that I could have been in, taking my path, that was an experience for me that said, you gotta, you have to do you. Wow. Oh, that's a great story. First of all, thank you for sharing that. That's a great story. How powerful that must have been. What strikes me most significantly about that story, and you can see how that's connected to that story of Ramatul, and you don't know where, wherever where God's taking you and the journey that you're on, and and also the, especially for the listeners that have been told their whole lives what's wrong with them. That's also a good message, you know. Like definitely, so many people kind of get stuck in that spot where everyone's busy. I'm sure they feel like they're trying to help somebody, they but are. Um, but but ultimately, you know, kind of getting stuck looking at the life through the lens of what's wrong with somebody uh, is a is a very tough thing. You know, I'm sure we could talk about that more. I don't want to get lost in that, but it's an interesting thing in the. You know, in the helping field and the social work field, you know, diagnosis, identification of problems is a big part of what we have to do in the therapeutic process. But you don't want to get lost in that journey because it it just disorients everything that you're trying to accomplish in trying to help somebody get along. So, so here you are, you're on this abnormal path, not the norm, not the normative, not the what you're supposed to do. That was a word that you were you used. I was supposed to go to YU and I didn't want to go to, you know, and you're looking for what you're supposed to do. And you end up in this class in, in Columbia and you end up with the right professor who's the head of admissions who's going to help you get in. What was really powerful about that story is that there's nothing magical about that story. Right. What's really powerful about that story is the story is a, a message of putting yourself out there because you're just trying to do the right thing and taking the opportunities that were in front of you without necessarily knowing exactly where it was going to play out and putting yourself there in an entire way. You know, as you were telling the story, I'm thinking, if I'm sitting there as the non-matriculated student in the class, I'm keeping my mouth shut because I'm feeling like all my feelings of 
inferiority are coming up and I don't really belong here and I don't want anyone to find out. And you threw yourself into it. And because you threw yourself into it, and because you put yourself out there, it placed you in a position for good things to happen, which is something I've learned along the way that is true in my life as well. You know, so often when you put yourself out there, opportunities come to you that never ever would have been possible. But it does mean facing the possibility of disappointment. Sure. You know, and that's I think like the hinge there that you have to kind of be honest about, but nonetheless, it takes the courage to kind of just put yourself out there. Listen, it's easier said than done. Right. But the reality is every human being is so unique and so special. And it's easy to say, but it's true. I mean, what makes people unique is them, not imitating other people. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn from others, of course, right? Mm -hmm. So we're supposed to learn from people, but each person has such a unique uniqueness about them. If they cover that up or lose that, God forbid, then they lose what makes them them, and that would be really sad. The world would lose them. Mm. That's a really powerful frame. Okay, so the the last question, getting to know you. Uh, I asked you to think about a specific folk story or a spiritual proverb, something that reflects you, something else, because we already got a great one. And also, what's a guiding principle that you take from that, that you've now applied in your life? Well, I feel like I gave the best answer. I could give another answer. My self, what, what I think what makes me me is that I, this is something that I've really, the way I came to this idea about how totally accepting or accepting is not even the right word, but learning that everything about you is right. Can I tell a quick story? Yeah. The story is changed my life. It's amazing. I wish the whole world would hear this story, honestly. Um, so I was a therapist, you know, and I guess I still am. And um, I met with a boy in TABC where I worked for many, many years, many years ago, before the new building, for anyone who knows the building. I was meeting in my old office, and I remember meeting this boy. And the boy had been dealing with a lot of social anxiety, a lot of it. He was hunched over. His body said it. He had a lot of acne. He never had like no friends. It was very sad. And I met with him, and I remember asking him about his life and his upbringing and what he'd been through. You know, and of course, unfortunately, this is a boy that was bullied when he was younger. People made fun of him. Maybe they beat him up even. It was very hard, obviously, very difficult, very sad. So I remember I asked him, and so how'd you deal with that? Like, what'd you do? So he said he started staying home a lot. I said, that's interesting. And how'd your parents take that? And he said, it bothered them. They, they were worried. Naturally, they should be, right? It's a natural reaction of a parent. I said, and so what did they do? And he said, well, they would always encourage me to go out. They would say, you can't make friends if you don't go out. I said, that must have been tough for them. It must have been really tough for you, though. Because you go out, you get bullied, you stay home, and you're told you got to go out. So I said to him, and how'd that make you feel? And my life changed with this. The kid looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said to me, it made me feel like I was crazy. And I looked back at him, and this was not something anyone ever taught me, never in words at least. And I said to him, and I started to cry, and I said, if you didn't feel like you were crazy, you would really be crazy. Mm. That was it. My life changed after that moment. I realized then that every feeling that I had 
and that everybody has is what makes them healthy, not unhealthy. His feeling crazy was a healthy feeling. Mm. He just needed someone to help him see that. Once he was able to see that, his whole life changed. I mean, literally, it's crazy. I saw him later. I don't remember how much later, but he was like walking confidently. He got engaged, whatever. I mean, his whole life pulled together. It could have been over years. I don't know whatever else went on in his life. But he's actually now, uh, I think he's getting a doctorate in psychology. Um, Baruch Hashem, you know, his life came together in a beautiful way. But forget his life, man. What it did for my life was unbelievable. He taught me something that I never knew really, or at least not consciously. That principle is the guiding principle in my life of how I relate to all people, especially to myself. Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, first of all, a couple of things that you, that, it's a great story, by the way. Thank it's a great you. story. The thing that jumps out at me, first of all, it really, really hammers home the point that you've been making throughout the whole time, which is consistent and what's been present in a lot of these interviews. One of, one of the things you kind of find as I'm interviewing different people, particularly people that are in a helping or a teaching or an educating field, invested in other people. There's an underlying core idea that they're trying to put out. There's a message that they have for the world. It's part of why we're doing these interviews to begin with, try to get, you know, gather together this information. And that story really hammers home this idea because it really captures that moment where that kid is stuck between, you know, trapped between these two, you know, polar opposites. If I go outside, vulnerable. If I stay inside, vulnerable. I'm trapped between a rock and a hard place. And the validation, really, that you gave, which is the word you used before about acceptance and validation, and I think the point that you're trying to make is that it's something, kind of a combination of all those things together, but like a validation that it's okay to feel crazy when the circumstances are crazy. It's more than okay. It's necessary. Right, right. It's exactly. protective. Right. It's the way it should be. Yeah, it's the way it should be. Very it's, powerful. It, you know? It's great. The other See, thing, okay yeah. still suggests that it's only okay. Right. This is more than that. It's ideal. Yeah. Like I always say, if I break my arm, it's going to hurt. Right. If it doesn't, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Yeah. No, that's great. It's a great point. It's, it's, a, it's a very powerful principle. The other point that you made is I'm sorry, if I could add one more thing. Yeah, yeah, please. That's why I'm actually so anti marijuana and drugs and alcohol. I'm different than I think most people who are anti. The reason I'm anti is because I'm very opposed to numbing feelings. To me, to be a happy, healthy, whole person, you have to, as I've said, embrace your feelings, but you have to also confront them. And what I see in a lot of people, both adults, young adults and, and teenagers, which is really most of the people I deal with, the teenagers, they're numbing. And it's sad because they could have so much more, such a more fulfilling, meaningful life if they wouldn't know. So like you're saying, by using drugs, what you're saying inherently is subtly, without knowing it, is you're saying my feelings are not, not only they're not okay, they're not acceptable. Yeah. And happiness for you is found in the exact opposite of that, which is like not only are my feelings okay, but they're amazing. Yeah, even the hurtful ones. Right. Because I know the hurtful ones is part of what makes me me. Right. Wow. The other thing that you touched on really powerfully before we jump into the practical side is how much when we are in a state of helping others, we oftentimes learn for ourselves the most powerful messages. I've said this in groups and people think I'm insane. Yeah. Right? Where I'll say, you know, like to me, the most powerful things for me that I have ever heard came out of my own mouth. 
And the reason for that is not because I'm the smartest guy in the world, but because oftentimes when I'm in a position either helping or teaching, the things that are coming out are stuff that really relate to to me and my life. Of course. And therefore, when I'm trying to transmit something to you, you know, I have way more to benefit from that than you, humbly speaking. And there's a tremendous benefit that emerges out of that. You can't intend to teach for that reason, but it's one of the really great side effects mm-hmm. of being in a in a teaching orientation or a helping orientation is that there's so much to be offered in helping others. You gave feedback to this kid about how he was feeling, but for you, it was a life-altering experience. I think there's a, a measure of honesty in admitting that because what that does is that when we're in an active state of teaching, we can also humbly be in an active state of learning. Learning from ourselves and learning from, you know, like, I mean, Chazal say, the Gemara says, students are our greatest teachers, mm-hmm. right? And that's not just like a, like being a nice guy saying things, patting a kid on the head, but it's really true. And really, we're all teaching, as you said before, we're all teaching each other yeah. constantly because we have so much to offer each other. So when we're in that awareness that we're constantly in a state of giving, it opens the door for us to receive way more than we could have imagined. Sure. I mean, I, I learn every day where, you know, where I am and where I teach. The guy's teaching me constantly. Right. The story really captured that. Okay, so jumping into the practical, I have four very practical questions about how you kind of orient your life and how that helps you to be successful. So the first one was I asked you to, to share with the audience a daily practice or a habit that you feel contributes to your personal success. It doesn't have to be something subtle, or that no one else knows. It doesn't be secret. It's not like a <laughs> private thing. Right. But something unique. Even even when it is, it's even better. You know. So it, it can even be something simple, but something that you can look back on now. You're 40 years old, so you can kind of look back and say, you know what, doing that really made a difference. I, I let me be me. That's the best thing. I used to be when I was younger. I was a big perfectionist, mm-hmm. and I'm not anymore. I, I mean, I certainly care about doing a good job, but. You know, I let myself fail. I let myself make mistakes. I don't kill myself for it. You know, I just let myself be. And I think that that lets me climb. Climb's not the right word, but, you know, it lets me succeed. And I do think I succeed, Blianhar, in a lot of ways in my life. But it's because for me, it's not about success. And it's just, I let myself be. That's probably the best answer I can But is there something that you do that helps you stay oriented in that way of thinking? Again, it goes back to what I told you. It's that principle that the only way I believe I can be happy or that people could be is by allowing themselves to be who they are and by accepting their feelings, their thoughts, their everything, really. So you have to remind, do you find yourself forgetting that? At this point, no. There were many years, yeah, I worked very hard at this. I went back and forth, the guilt, you know, go through the guilt, oh, I did this wrong. But at this point, Blianhar, no, I, I, it's it's ingrained in me. It's you know, so when when you were working on it, yeah, how did you work on it? Like, what does that look like? I guess a lot of self reflection. You know, I mean, my friends used to joke and make fun when I was younger that I was always a very introspective person. Um, I used to like to, you know, be alone a lot when I was younger. Yeah, I've been through a lot emotionally in my life, a lot. So I've worked really hard on. Getting to a place of acceptance, I guess, of, of letting myself be me. But it took a lot of time and took a lot of learning. 
I guess the best answer is that I don't allow myself to numb or run away from what bothers me, even about myself. I, if you ask anyone, they'll tell you about me. I'm, I'm very blunt sometimes, and I'm very honest, even with myself. So, you know, it's going to sound funny. I don't drink caffeine because it's the same concept for me. Because mm. you don't want to get out of Where, yourself, yeah. wherever you are. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, if I'm tired, I, I'll take a nap. But I, I don't drink caffeine. Mm. And it's part of that philosophy. So you yeah. take it to an extreme. I don't take Advil. Really? Yeah. Like if you have a headache, because you don't want to take yourself out of, that, out of that space. Yeah, it's meant to be there to help me. It's either stress or I'm tired, probably. Well, I should address that. So you're taking it very literally. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. No, it's good. It's very admirable. Okay, so if I, I asked you to think about, to pick one thing about one relationship. That makes that relationship awesome and work. Um, if you had to pick one thing, what would it be? And what are the steps you take to foster that? It's hard. That's, a, that's the hardest question for me so far, I think. I could tell you why it's the hardest question for me. You know, as you could tell, my, I'm very into letting people be who they are. You have to accept the other person. You have to accept yourself. So... Probably what it is is it's probably my acceptance of people of the way they are. I don't expect people to be different than they are because I don't think they can be, even if they want to be. Meaning, like I've been saying the whole time, people have. I always say I'd love someone to make a movie. They might have made something like this. I don't know, but I'd love to. If you took a movie of my life or your life and we watched it on reverse, mm-hmm. we would know every reason that you ever felt or did anything. And at every scene that you saw it, you'd be like, makes sense, I get it. The whole crowd would get it. So I see people that way, if that makes sense. So like, I just know people are supposed to be the way they are. So with my Talmidim, let's say in particular, I know that if they, anything they do, they have a good reason for it. We all do. So Okay, so, so, Okay, so if you can ask me a different question, no, bad relationships with anybody, <laughs> you know. I mean, but I think you 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 teased out a really powerful principle. I think that's really important. Which is what are the te- what are the steps you take to foster in your relationships this one idea of you know embracing wherever a person is or wherever you are, as that relates into the person that you're with, that relates to. Being okay with them, which is not always easy because people are people and they're annoying. Right. They can be. So, again, it, a lot of that comes down to your motivation level to make it work with the person. Right. Right. Meaning, some people, it's just like, okay, listen, I get it's not their fault, but like, I don't, I can't do this. I'm not interested. Well, I'm not their therapist. You know, I can't. But when you're in a relationship that's important to you, you have to make it work. And, and you feel like this principle makes relationships work? Every relationship. Right. If we all understood each other really, there'd be no issues. So when you look back at somebody's life, you're not, so to speak, because you said something interesting in a, in a psychological frame, oftentimes you try to build a narrative of somebody's story 
from the front, mm-hmm. you know, from childhood. Yeah, very good, right? And trying to build a picture of them from like all, which which kind of fixates on their pathologies, yeah, right. And you're talking about something really interesting, which is kind of like building the picture backward, right? Exactly, right. With the assumption that they're exactly who they're supposed to be, they are, and exactly where they are. It's not an assumption. It's right. it's something I've learned and seen over and over again, right. But then taking that kind of leap or embracing that idea allows you to see them differently. And then what you're saying is that that fosters really meaningful relationships because you're, it allows you or it encourages you to experience that person exactly who they are because you're accepting that they're, you're, it's, it's, so, it's so subtle, but it's really cool. I like it a lot. Thank you. I, Scott, I really like it a lot. Because what, like, what you're saying is, is like when you're looking at somebody as the aggregate of all their past experiences in a forward-moving way, you're kind of orienting yourself to maybe who they could have been or who they should have been. And when you're looking at them retrospectively, so to speak, kind of looking at them like, this is who they are and this is where they're exact, exactly supposed to be. So then the, the past is only like, like something you're curious about. Yeah. Right? Because you're fully embracing who well, they I'm are. Well, I'm so happy you said that because, you know, and I don't know if you'll agree with this or others will, but I, I used to be more concerned with people's past. I'm actually not very concerned at all with it. It's only helpful to me or to them, I think. It's almost like the Rambam says, I think, that like we do mitzvahs because the master of the world tells us to. It's nice to know the reasons. Right. It definitely helps. But Lamaisi, you don't need it. Right. Of That's course. how I feel about this. No, no. I, I, I was agree. just meeting with the Talmud earlier before I got here, and he had a panic attack. This is where I learned all this, was from this boy and panic attacks. These are the two places. My experience with panic attacks is the way to stop them for good is by embracing them, is by recognizing that there's a tornado going on inside that needs to be released. Generally, the panic is caused, in my opinion, by the fear of what's going on. Right, right, right. right. The anxiety about your anxiety is much worse. But but if we let go of that anxiety and we simply embrace the actual anxiety, it will do what it needs to. Right. Even if you don't know why, the body will the body will heal. No, I think I think those are those are more often than not the reality. I, I agree hundred percent. Even at helping someone see in my clinical practice, helping people see the degree to which the anxiety about their anxiety is way, way more pervasive and destructive than the anxiety themselves creates so much relief and allows them to be able to face it. Agreed, so but I would add one more thing. Yeah. They should even embrace the anxiety about the anxiety. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah, very yeah, no, it's very nice. Right? I like it. Yeah. Right, because like inherently you have That's to be cautious. That's who they are. It's part of them. <laughs> Otherwise, we're teaching them again to not trust themselves. That's right, what right. it comes down to. No, I hear you. Yeah. People have to learn to trust themselves. Their feelings are not messed up. Their feelings are correct. Hmm. They might need someone like you or me to help them Embrace those things, or learn about them, or talk about them in a healthy environment. Right, but there's nothing wrong with them. It's a great message. I really like it. Thank okay, you. so last two questions. Mm-hmm. The first one is: we've touched on humility a couple times, and you've definitely kind of tried to orient yourself towards a speaking your truth, but also doing so from a humble place. So I asked you to share with the audience a practice or a mantra that helps you to stay grounded, right. even in your successes. So I like this question. I'll tell you why. I don't even understand the question. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I, yeah. I don't. I don't even know what that means to stay grounded. Like yeah. grounded as opposed to what? Grounded as opposed to lost in delusion. 
Delusions okay. of grandeur. Okay, you talked about before. I'll, I'll I'll go with you. You talked about before about in your past, and maybe this is not something you're struggling with now. But you talked about before about what I think a lot of yeshiva guys or maybe seminary girls also get lost in, which is like the the fantasy of being a gadol, right. right? And you made the really really good observation. You framed it really well, which is like a gadol doesn't become a gadol by trying to be a gadol. Right? That seems to be the case. I think so. I mean, I don't know anything about being a gadol. Me neither. But I know what it's like to have success in what I'm trying right. to do. Right. And I know that if I try. Tried to have success, it never would have happened. Well, that's the famous Misa with the Kutzker. They say that uh, the Mishnah says that. Well, now I like you already. You're quoting no, the, the Kutzker, Kutzker so. right? Of course, <laughs> like-minded. So no, no. There's a Misa. They say that the Mishnah says that anyone who chases after covered, covered runs away. Right. So uh, Chassid said to the Kutzker Rebbe, he said, "I've been running from my whole life. It's never chased me." Right. So the Kutzker said, "Well, it doesn't work when you're running, looking backwards the whole time." <laughs> <laughs> you know. Okay. There you go. That's the mantra. <laughs> So the, the, I guess part of the question was, how do you remain free from that, from those delusions? How did you step away from that delusion? From you caring about, about trying to be great? Yeah. I mean, I don't need to oh, be grounded. I, I don't know. I'm just a guy. Like, I don't know what that even means. I'm being Well, so, that is grounded. I guess. That's just what it is, though. I, I mean, I don't struggle with that. Right. I w- did years ago. Right. So how did you change that? Again, I changed it by what I told you. Right. Okay. So it's this. It's the same kind of it's principle. The same principle. Once I accepted that I needed to be great, I didn't need to be great anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Once I allowed myself to just be and let my feelings flow and be who I am, you get to a point where. Oh, this is where, interesting. So what you're saying you is, just are. Okay. So you're saying Menachem, you're trying to get me to tell you how I eradicated my feelings of. Delusional aspiration, but yeah. once I come to accept them for what they are, yeah. then I don't need to eradicate them. I can just they do. not pay attention to them. No, no, I don't have to not pay attention. They, our feelings will naturally navigate. I tell guys all the time. You know how ways reroutes, right? So do feelings, right? They, they reroute by themselves. Uh, listen, to be honest, people that want to be great are probably people that have been hurt in the past and don't feel great about themselves. So they need to be great to feel better about themselves. Right. I feel fine. So I don't need to be great because I'm fine. I'm you know, I don't feel great. I feel fine. Well, do I not feel great? Let me say it differently. I do feel great. I feel great about who I am, but it doesn't make me better than anyone else. I'm just me. And you Right. Know, when we talk about that feeling need to be great, it's like ascribing a particular moment or experience, a benchmark that would tell me that I'm okay. Right? That's what you're trying to get away from. I guess I just am okay. Like Listen, do I care to be successful? I, don't, I guess we have to define successful. I mean, I care to I care to be a good guy and help people. I don't know. <laughs> that's, right. all, that's all I care about. That's great. Okay, great. You know? Okay. Like Part, I don't tell you something. There's somebody yeah, yeah. named Dr. Sorotskin. He's like my mentor in life. Okay. He's unbelievable. Okay. If you don't know him yet, well, you need to. Everybody needs to. He has a website, Change My Life. Unbelievable. DrSorotskin.com. He's unbelievable. One of the things he taught me many, many years ago is that being okay is the goal, not being great. You know, one of the things I love about him, like I don't have aspirations of my children being great. I have aspirations of them being who they are, whatever that is. They're great just the way they are. I, I don't know. I don't have like these ideals. Oh, I hope my kid grows up and does X, Y, and Z. I want them to be happy, and I think being happy means not. I think I know. Being happy means not being lost, you know, like Ramatul said, just to follow the the way of a Jew, the way Hashem intended for us to live. That's it. Follow halacha and that's it. And you know, and obviously, you know, not just follow, live it, love it. But uh that's it. I don't know. I don't know what else there is. That's great. No, it's great. It's a great answer. The last question I ask you is 
if there are specific steps that you take, and this is going to be, yeah, it's going to go right back in. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, are there specific steps that you take to recharge or handle burnout or yeah. emotional? No, that I actually do have an answer for. Okay. I sleep. Okay. My wife hates it. She knows that when I'm down. I wouldn't say depressed. I don't really get depressed, but I get down. The other night I was down. I sleep. I crash and burn. And you know, sometimes she gets annoyed. Like you're going to sleep at eight o'clock. Like I have a house full of seven kids running around. And it's true. I mean, thank God I have the best wife in the world. But uh, I, I do. I sleep. And she gets annoyed at me. She's like, "You can't do that. You can't run away from your stuff." And I said, "I'm not running away. This is how I handle it." It's a lot better than what most people do. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't get things I'm not supposed to look at. I don't, you know, I, I sleep. Okay. How long do I sleep for? I get up and I, I get moving the next day. But yeah, my body, I, I just, I sleep. That's what I do. So do you feel, is that because you feel you're overwhelmed? I feel overwhelmed. I and then feel you feel sad. it in your body. Totally. Like you feel the, the tiredness in your of body. Of course. Overwhelmed, right. tired, sad. And I sleep. And I, when I was a kid, I did other things that were not effective. But now I just I, I'll go to sleep, and the next day I wake up and I start uh, you know I keep going. Okay, a lot of people might do something like that and then find it harder to get up the next day. What well, do you that's think true. It? No, but the, the differentiation is that I'm not I'm not defeated. <laughs> I'm just overwhelmed in the moment or sad because whatever you know. Like for example, so I, you think the, the the separation between somebody who does that and let's say gets trapped in their dead their bed for three days versus what your experience is more has to do with how you go into bed than what happens. Yeah, like for me, and the attitude you have about well, it's the same attitude about feelings. For some people, when they're sad, they think they're depressed. Or for me, sadness is normal. It's natural. We all have it. We're supposed to have it. So it doesn't scare me. Being overwhelmed for me is okay. You know, it's fine. I get overwhelmed. I go. I take a nap. I get up, whatever. I did it last night, actually. Um, but that was because the night before I was up till 4 a.m., I think. I got home last night, whatever time, 8 o'clock, and I, I ate, you know, and I fell right asleep, honestly. So I, I sleep. That's generally what I do. I will admit, though, now uh, my brother-in-law has a beautiful apartment in Long Branch by the water, and I haven't had time, but th- that's my ideal place to go and really just take time to... Relax, whatever, because it's a healthy, in my opinion, place. You know, by the ocean, the water, the just to be by yourself. No, not not necessarily. Even the ocean. The ocean to, to me be. is very calming. Mm. Very calming. Mm. It's a natural calming place. Okay. Wow. This is awesome. Okay, Rabbi Scotty Friedman, you killed it. <laughs> that was for sure the most interesting interview I've done. Thank you. It's very consistent. I think that it's really nice. I like the fact that there's like a there's an underlying principle in how you're approaching all these things. Everything. And I feel like we highlighted so many ways in which that principle can First benefit of all, our I, lives. I really want to thank you. Whoever's listening to you in general is very lucky. You're doing something I wanted to do, and I respect it a lot. I didn't know there are people even that have podcasts talking to educators about things that work and don't work. That's really amazing. Good for you, good for the people who are lucky enough to know to listen to you. And you know, I hope that whatever we shared will be helpful to people. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining the Consciously family. Consciously is brought to you by The Light Revealed, a social media publisher bringing messages of Jewish spirituality and recovery to whoever is looking for them. Consciously is made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tzipora Bas Ravaron. Our producer is Morty Schwartz. Our audio engineer is Alps, and our artwork is by Tani Puzz. 
Our social media team is led by Tahil and Asanian with help from Zoe Poznanski. The assistant to the regional co-host is Shmaya Hanukman, and our music is by Eitan Katz featuring Zush. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We love connecting with you, so please feel free to email us at consciouslythepodcast at gmail.com or private message us on Instagram or Facebook at The Light Revealed. Da, 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 da.